Well, one thing that I would be happy to never get again in my life is what they humorously call Montezuma's Revenge. Folks, be careful when eating and drinking water in Mexico, or in my case, Jamaica. It can wreck your digestive system for weeks. And I will give you a surefire way to get Montezuma's Revenge in case you're into intestinal issues. Head to Mexico or your developing country of choice, toss all caution to the wind, eat whatever tasty local cuisine you like, and guzzle a lot of tap water. And I assure you, it's not going to be pretty. It's helpful to know when traveling how what to do to stay healthy, how to stay healthy when traveling. It's also helpful to know what to do to get sick when traveling, because then you don't do those things. Want to get sick? Drink the local water. Use the bathroom and leave without washing your hands. Lick vending machine buttons and rinse your toothbrush out in the toilet, things like that. At some point, we all learn that doing those kinds of careless things does come with harsh and bitter consequences, sometimes maybe for a week or two. Now, why am I talking about diarrhea and other gross things? Well, it's a lead-in to talking about hell the preeminent and everlasting anguish of body and soul. We need to know how to go to hell so that we don't go to hell. Jesus already approached this topic in Matthew, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads where? To destruction and those who enter by it are many. My title is How to Be Sure That You're Going to Hell. And that may be shocking to some of you that I would put it that way. It may surprise you. And I state it that way really to get you thinking, to get the wheels turning. I, I want you to do some introspection this morning. But I ultimately want this sermon to have the opposite effect of its title. That you would leave here absolutely sure that you are not going to hell, but going to heaven to be with Christ forever. As odd as the title may seem, this message should actually assure you, brothers and sisters, and deepen your comfort in knowing Christ is sufficient to rescue you from your sin and misery. And God's judgment. This sermon leads right into next week. Next week, we'll unpack wonderful phrases like your gracious will and I will give you rest, and you will find rest for your souls. But before Jesus addressed God's sovereignty in salvation and gave a, a gracious invitation, he addressed the topic of judgment in hell. We shouldn't rush past the sobering truth of judgment to get to the comforting truth of the gospel because the truth of judgment deepens our comfort in the truth of the gospel. Jesus started his preaching out with the need for repentance. Jesus didn't start his preaching with, God loves you so much just as you are and he wants a relationship with you. That's not where he started. No, Jesus began with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus began with repentance and, and he progressed to the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
You see, Jesus makes no sense to a person who does not recognize how great their sin and misery are. Jesus is irrelevant to the self-righteous, uninspiring to the self-determined, and asinine to the self-important. If you know how great your sin and misery truly are and you know how great and powerful the merits of Christ are to rescue even the vilest sinner and you hear this message, it should deepen your gratitude and comfort in the security of your salvation in Christ. This message should only unsettle and terrify those who stubbornly persist Be sure, absolutely sure that you're going to hell. Learn about Jesus, but refuse to repent. That's simple. Learn about Jesus, but refuse to repent, and you will go to hell. This message offends human sensibilities, but it's a true message. It is a message that we need to hear. Not easy to hear, but we need to hear it. Jesus denounces people who refuse to repent. He accuses them, blames them, charges them with guilt, even condemns them. And he's right, and he is good to do so. Many so-called evangelists today will preach to arrogant and unrepentant sinners that God is not mad at them, and that God is actually for them. And our text today disproves that, shows that's not good to tell people that God is mad at and that is against because Jesus is actually against impenitent, prideful, and unrepentant people. People today would not be confused about Jesus' posture towards unrepentant sinners if they would just pay attention to what Jesus preached. I think if we're fair to what Jesus preached, we'll conclude this, Jesus denounces everyone who stubbornly refuses to acknowledge their sin, stubbornly refuses to hate and turn from their sin, and stubbornly refuses to receive God's grace and spirit by trusting in Christ and his message. It's true, brothers and sisters. Jesus denounces everyone who encounters the gospel and remains unmoved, unchanged, and unaffected. Brothers and sisters, the way that you and I need to hear this sobering message today is with the ears of faith, allowing Jesus' words to compel us to trust Christ all the more, to delight in Christ's mercy and grace all the more, to to move us to a deeper sense of sorrow over our sin as well as a deeper sense of delight and freedom in the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ and our reconciliation to God through Christ, which should lead where? To our greater purity and righteousness and commitment to obedience. But those who refuse to repent should be terrified. Now, before I get too far, I want to make two preliminary points. First, People hate Jesus because he denounces them in their wickedness and calls them to repent. Jesus didn't come to earth to win friends and influence people. 
He came to save his people from their sins. And when Jesus started denouncing people for their sins, they hardened. They grew angrier and angrier. They hated him more and more to the point of crucifying him on a Roman cross. But those that he came to save, those who knew their sin and guilt and misery, the elect, they were softened. They fell at his feet in contrition and they received him by faith and they grew to love him more and more and more. But see, as we continue through the gospel of Matthew, we're going to see unrepentant unbelievers grow increasingly hostile to Jesus. And we have to understand why. Why is hostility growing? Why did people hate and oppose Jesus so strongly? And Jesus explained this in John 7, 7 in clear terms. The world hates me because, so here's the reason that the world hates him, I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus tells the world that its works are evil and the world hates him for it. They don't want to hear about their wickedness. They don't want to hear about their sin and guilt before a holy God. They want to be applauded for their wickedness, rewarded for their wickedness, encouraged in their wickedness. And this is why the world hates Jesus. He shines a light on their vileness, depravity, and contemptibility. Jesus denounces the world and commands them to repent, but they don't want to. Now, knowing that will help us understand verses 20 through 24 and why it's so strong. So my second preliminary point is this. Jesus performed great acts of power and preached the gospel of the kingdom in Galilee, which did something significant. It revealed his divine identity to the people. Now, if we struggle in hearing Jesus' very direct and startling words here, we might struggle, oh, that is so strong. We might struggle to understand why Jesus denounces the various cities of Galilee so strongly, so in their face, we should carefully consider the truth and the grace that he revealed to them so powerfully and so plainly. They had no excuse for rejecting him. Matthew wrote earlier, just listen to these wonderful words. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus was doing amazing things, unfathomable things for the people of Galilee. He healed a leper. He healed a centurion's servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And Matthew recounts, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word. 
and healed all who were sick. Jesus healed a paralytic. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He healed two blind men. He healed a demon-oppressed mute man. And the crowds, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Never. Amazing acts. And that's significant, their response. The people of Galilee knew that they were witnessing astonishing, supernatural, divine power that no one had ever before seen in the world, and yet they did not repent. He taught, he preached, he healed in Matthew 9, 36, that he says that he even had compassion on them. The cities of Galilee, including Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, were uniquely blessed because Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, was actually in their midst preaching the gospel and doing astonishing works of supernatural power that no one had ever done before or seen before. And these spectacular works done in their midst revealed that he was the Messiah and showed that he was in fact God. They were experiencing the Christ and the power of God firsthand. But as they stood before the majesty of God, they did not make the connection to their own sin and guilt and misery. They didn't connect the dots. This is why he said right before he began to denounce them, but to what shall I compare this generation it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Jesus told them exactly what they were like. He, he very helpfully, painfully, but very helpfully exposed their sin and need. Yet they did not repent in the presence of God. What a rancid display of arrogance and pig-headedness. Their arrogance and unbelief were astounding. The prophets and the Old Testament saints, they longed for the Messiah to come. Oh, that he would come and he would rescue us. They longed to see him perform divine acts of power, but they never saw them. And yet they still trusted. And then Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, comes to Israel, does the works of God in profound displays of power and authority and supremacy, and they didn't receive him. They didn't trust him. That's a surefire way to go to hell. Hear and see the power and glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ and refuse to repent and refuse to receive him in faith. This brings me to my first of two main points. Number one, Jesus denounces people who encounter the gospel but refused to repent. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. 
Sure, they were astonished. They were blown away. They saw his power. Wow, that's incredible. But what didn't they do? They didn't make the connection to their own sin and guilt, and they did not repent. And so Jesus denounced them. Jesus performed most of his mighty and divine works throughout Galilee in various cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum included. The people of those cities saw the divine acts of God which no one had seen before. They were actually beneficiaries, direct beneficiaries of his compassionate ministry. As the curtain rose, they had front row seats to behold the greatest performance of history. And as they watched and as they listened, the glory and power of Jesus became clearer and clearer and their boos became louder and louder. The Son of God and Savior of the world was plainly making himself known as the promised Son of David, the promised Son of Abraham, the promised Son of God. And they didn't like the Jesus show. His mighty acts of power were meant to verify his identity as the divine son of God and anointed Christ. That's why when John asked this question, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now what is Jesus gonna do to give him an answer for that? Where's Jesus going to point to show that he is the Messiah? The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The cities of Galilee were seeing and hearing these messianic realities but were not repenting. They were... They weren't making the necessary connection of faith. So listen carefully. Repentance is evidence that you have heard and received Christ by faith. Repentance is the fruit, the evidence that you have Christ. What more did the cities need to encounter to get them to repent and trust Christ? They they had ample reason to repent but didn't And so Jesus denounced them. Their inflexibility was astounding. So understand, verse 20 is a serious verse. Understand why Matthew wrote verse 20. To see the power and glory of God in Jesus Christ and to remain unmoved, unchanged, unaffected, to not repent, is reason enough to receive the fierce judgment of God through Christ. Now Usain Bolt, he stands among the greatest Olympians ever. Uh, A very electric uh, competitor. He set the world record for the 100 meter sprint with a time of 9.58 seconds. That is blazing speed. And this means that if you do the math from zero to whatever, uh, he reached the speeds of 27, over 27 miles per hour as a sprinter. It's blazing speed. It's incredible. Now, who knows Usain Bolt's greatness more than those who watched Usain Bolt at the World Championships and in the Olympics. 
Who knows Usain Bolt and it's, uh, Bolt's greatness more than those who sprinted beside him and got smoked? They knew. All of them watched his greatness working in front of them. The cities of Galilee watched the greatness of Christ in front of them and they remained arrogant and cold, unaffected, unchanged, unmoved. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Whoa! Whoa! The pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon, cities that the prophets condemned, never saw the magnitude of God's power in Christ. And yet if they had, those pagan cities would have responded better than the religious Jews in Galilee. His words were shocking and alarming to the Jewish crowds to think that pagan Gentiles their cities would be better off than them, the people of Israel on the day of judgment was unthinkable. Calvin rightly commented, there was not one of them who did not look upon the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon as abominable despisers of God. It is therefore no small heightening of his curse when Christ says that there would have been more hope of reformation from those places in which there was no religion than is to be seen in Judea itself. Unrepentant sinners. All right, folks, unrepentant sinners in Tyre and Sidon, we can't be confused about this, they will face judgment but Jesus used those pagan cities to make a point about the impenitence of Israel. They would bear greater judgment because, and this is important to realize, they received greater revelation and still refused to repent. And that should make us, as churchgoers, who have probably spent years and years under the preaching and teaching of the gospel to at least slow up and to think a little bit. Jesus then began to denounce his hometown, Capernaum. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's coming from Jesus. Those were some serious words of condemnation. God destroyed Sodom for its wickedness by raining down sulfur and fire from heaven. God torched the city to the ground because not even 10 righteous people were found there. If Sodom, a picture of vileness and vulgarity, would have seen the Messiah do what he did in Galilee, that city would have remained. And here Capernaum is arrogantly assuming that they have special privilege with God when in reality they would be cast by Jesus into the fires of hell for their stubborn and willful unrepentance and unbelief. 
Now, Hades can mean different things in different contexts. Hades can mean death, just simple death. Um, Hades can mean the place of all dead. Hades could mean the place of the wicked dead only. So it can mean different things. And I don't think Jesus was saying here, you will physically die like Sodom. I think Jesus is using Hades to refer to hell, the place of torment for unrepentant sinners. See, he contrasts Hades with heaven. The reference to God's judgment in fire upon Sodom, which was vivid imagery for them, only strengthens the view that that I'm espousing here. Jesus is condemning unrepentant sinners to hell. And in this case, unrepentant sinners from Capernaum who think that they're going to heaven. He challenged their presumption. Will you be exalted to heaven? And then he corrects. You will be brought down to Hades. It is certain that on judgment day, the king of glory, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ will sentence all unrepentant sinners to hell. It will happen. And J.C. Ryle gives a very helpful challenge to unrepentant sinners. He wrote this. Listen carefully. This is really good. He says, Surely these words ought to make the ears of everyone tingle who hears the gospel regularly and yet remains unconverted. How great is the guilt of such a man before God. How great the danger in which he daily stands. Moral and decent and respectable as his life may be, he is actually more guilty than an idolatrous uh, Tyrian or Sidonian or a miserable inhabitant of Sodom. They had no spiritual light. He has and neglects it. They had no gospel. He hears but does not obey it. Unquote. How can you be sure that you're going to hell? Well, brothers and sisters, isn't it clear? Be like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Encounter the gospel, learn about Jesus, see and hear his power and authority and supremacy in the scriptures preached to you over and over again and remain unmoved, unchanged, and unaffected. And refuse to repent and refuse to receive Christ by faith. And then refuse to walk in newness of life. Saints, and I'm talking to you, brothers and sisters, saints, those united to Christ by true faith. I'm talking to you now. You hear this message with the ears of faith and with eyes fixed on Christ in his glory in the gospel. And And you hear this message and you are reminded of the holiness and the greatness of your God who by his power and by his grace rescued you from his judgment through the works of his precious son. Hearing all of this serious talk from Jesus only intensifies your thankfulness. To have refuge in Christ, it increases your confidence that Jesus is sufficient for you. It increases your love of Christ because you know what he did to rescue you from this condemnation. But some of you should be terrified because 
you may be learning about Jesus, but you're not actually repenting. He denounces you. He says to your inflexible soul, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. That's a, that's a different group of people that I'm addressing here than the saints. Will you remain unmoved, unchanged, unaffected by Jesus? And I think this call can go out to the unconverted and to the converted alone. Fall at his feet. Confess your sins. Repent and put your faith in Christ alone so that you, so that you will find rest for your soul and strength and endurance to live a new life knowing that you belong to Christ. More on that next week. Next week, different words, different phrases. It will be good. You do. This is part one. That's part two. So I come to my second and my last big point, number two, and this is intended to bring a lot of comfort to you saints who, who trust in the Lord and who are united to him to try to make sense of this for you. Your ongoing repentance confirms that you belong to Christ and assures you of God's forgiveness and favor. There is great comfort in daily repentance. Let me say that again. There is great comfort in daily repentance. See, if you find yourself repenting, and, and, and we're not talking about perfection here. Incremental steps ahead, it, it, it's, it's hard. It doesn't look pretty, but you're repenting and you're turning and you're going to Christ and you keep doing it. Then you're not on your way to hell because ongoing repentance confirms that God's power and grace are at work in you. It, repentance is evidence that you are receiving Christ by true faith. That's an assurance. In Luke 5, this is a beautiful, beautiful moment. Jesus performed this astonishing miracle for Peter and his fishing partners. They, they, they fished. I had to miss two fishing trips. I didn't catch a single fish. They were not catching fish, and they were trying hard. And yet when Jesus gave them instructions, all of a sudden, both of the boats start filling up with fish to the point. So full, the boats are actually starting to sink. And I want to ask the question, in that miraculous and supernatural display of power in that moment, how did Peter respond? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Isn't that interesting? Why that? When God's glory and power were displayed in Christ, Peter felt his unworthiness in the presence of God. He confessed his own sin. He confessed the lordship and supremacy of Christ. Peter had a penitent and repentant heart which was in awe at the holiness and power of Christ. The way to be sure that you're going to hell is to learn about Jesus but to refuse to fall. Refuse to bend on your knees before Jesus, the Lord of glory. The way to be sure that you're going to heaven. To be in the presence of your king forever is to be so astonished at his holiness 
and his righteousness and his power that you fall to your knees in humility and repentance, clinging to Jesus in true faith. The act of ongoing repentance confirms that you belong to Christ. That little bit of effort I have not been giving the right effort. And I'm not talking about Jonathan just gutting it out. Spirit-wrought effort, submission to my king. I need to repent. The act of ongoing repentance as we make that little by little progress forward actually confirms that we belong to Christ, dear ones. It assures us that we have God's forgiveness and favor when we find ourselves turning. How can you be sure you're going to hell, learn about Jesus, but refuse to repent? But you know what, dear saints, the opposite is also true. How can you be sure you're not going to hell? How can you be sure that you're going to heaven? Learn about Jesus and repent. Ongoing repentance verifies that you have received Jesus by faith. And if you are to be sure that you have not repented, if you're to be sure, I I haven't repented, Or if you are to be sure that you have repented, I really have, I am, well then you must know what it means to repent. You gotta have a definition, you gotta know what that looks like. Well, we love confessions here, reformed confessions, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance very well, pulls a lot of scripture together in a helpful question and answer. Question 87 asks, what is repentance to life? What is it? And it answers this, repentance to life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of the mercy of God in Christ does, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it to God with full intention of and endeavor after new obedience. Now I'm gonna break that down, simple bullet points. Repentance is a gracious gift from God. Repentance is a sinner's true sense of his sin. I know it, I feel it. Repentance is a sinner's understanding of God's mercy in Christ. Repentance is a sinner's grief and hatred of his sin. Repentance is a sinner's turning from sin to God. Repentance is a sinner's spirit wrought. You have to have that spirit wrought exertion to walk in obedience to God. You do that by faith as the spirit helps you. When repentance happens in your life and in your heart, it it assures you that God's grace is at work in you. Repentance is a gracious and wonderful gift of God which assures you of your true faith and your union with Christ. Where would we be without mentioning Heidelberg 88 through 90? That helps us as well. Question 88, what is the true repentance or conversion of man? 
It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. That's what it looks like. 89, what is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate and flee from it. That's the dying. And then 90, what is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. That wasn't happening for the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, but that must happen for you and that must happen for me for us not to go to hell. Or put another way, for us to be saved and to go into the beautiful presence of our King. If you are repenting, your old nature is continuing to die. Might be a slow death, but it's dying And if you are repenting, you are more and more grieving with heartfelt sorrow that you have offended God by your sin and you're hating your sin more and more and you're fleeing your sin more and more. And trust me, saints, that can be ever so slow. Not as fast as what we want, but it's happening. If you are repenting, your new nature is coming more and more to life you're experiencing increasing joy in God and increasing love and delight to do what your loving Father wants you to do. This wasn't happening in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, but it must happen in you and it must happen in me for us to find comfort and assurance that we actually belong to Christ and that we are not indeed going to hell sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus, is assurance of salvation. Is the old man in you, the old you, that wicked, deceitful you that's prone and inclined to hate God and neighbor, is it dying in you? And is the new you, the one being fashioned after Christ, coming alive in you? You see, repentance is not once and done. Repentance is not just saying a simple prayer. It's a lifestyle of turning every day. Turn, turn from sin to Christ. Repentance is daily, hard, fought, putting sin to death by the Spirit and by faith and putting on Christ to walk in obedience to God's law. Are you repenting? Of course, you're not perfect. Your perfection is Christ, dear saints. You're not perfect, but are you repenting? That's why, because we aren't perfect, that we have to continue to repent. Are you? If so, your repentance, even if it's small and incremental, are ongoing, we could say your ongoing transformation, the beautiful transformation, is evidence of the Spirit's work in you, and it verifies that you indeed belong to Christ. Oh, that's deep comfort. The Westminster Shorter Catechism 85 asks the question, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And that's the question that Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum should have been asking. But they weren't asking, but you and I need to ask that question for ourselves today. What does God require of you and me? 
that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin. That means we deserve it. How do we not go to hell when we deserve to go there? How do we avoid Jesus denouncing us when he should speak against us? And the answer that Westminster gives is profound. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance to life. With the diligent use of all the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption. And I I, I wanna break that down a little bit so you understand the pieces of this. So a fundamental change must happen inside of you. You need a new heart. You need to be united to Christ as one by faith. You need the fruit of ongoing repentance in your life. And then as you continue to trust in Christ and repent from your sins, you must diligently receive the outward means which God communicates to you the gospel. And where does he do that, saints? But in the preaching of the word and the sacraments. His means of communicating to you his grace, his means of strengthening and building up your faith and your repentance. And as your faith grows and as your repentance continues, your soul is comforted in the provision of God's grace in Christ through the means of grace, preaching and the sacraments. Do you understand? That's God's provision for you. Now, many of us, if you're like me, many of us have grown up hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not everybody's story, but for many of you, that's your story. We've likely heard hundreds of sermons. In my case, I've heard thousands. It has to be thousands of of sermons. So that means we've encountered the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ in the preaching of the gospel, in the reading of scripture. We are similar to Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, except we have the full revelation of the gospel in the person and work of Jesus Christ in scripture. And I read a a sobering sentence in a study Bible that, that challenged me. It challenges all of us who have heard countless sermons The gospel, and the note said this, with greater revelation comes great accountability and greater condemnation for unbelief. With greater revelation comes great accountability and greater condemnation for unbelief. Isn't that consistent with what this passage says? If we refuse to repent now, I'm not talking about humbly repenting, if we refuse to repent after all the gospel that we've encountered through the years in preaching and in the lives of faithful and mature saints that we have walked alongside of who are following Christ, aren't we even worse than Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum? Brothers and sisters, let us repent. Let us daily repent of our sins and run to Christ in true faith to find that deep solace and comfort and peace and joy for our souls and to find the strength that we need to live differently than the world. Let us not delay to face our besetting sins, the ones that just keep on coming, relentless coming, let us face them and let us, with Christ's help, put them to death 
to put on Christ and to live in that freedom and to live in that thankfulness of obedience. Let's pray for this. Let's ask God to do this in our midst. We need to pray because it's his grace. We need his grace. Let, let us trust Christ to do this in us and then let us thank you when he, thank him when he does it in us. I'm, I'm gonna end with a plea. It's a challenge. And it's from Dr. Leon Morris. I think it's very appropriate, and it's a very powerful paragraph. It's long, but I want you to stick with it. I think you can track with it. We have to consider that we are not actually like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in the powerful gospel and testimony of Holy Scripture. We are uniquely blessed. Would you agree with that? Uniquely blessed at this point in history to have multiple copies of God's Word sitting in our homes telling us of the glories of the gospel. So listen closely to Dr. Morris's challenge and take it to heart. People will never advance spiritually unless they take the first step of turning away from the evil they have done. The people in the towns of which Jesus is speaking had seen the miracles indeed, but they had not reflected on what those miracles meant for those who saw them. The miracles testified to the presence of the divine in their midst. Therefore, the people who saw them should have asked themselves how they stood before God, but they did not. They continued on their sinful way without even the beginning of repentance. It was their failure to repent that formed the charge against them, and it runs right through this paragraph. Repentance is important and it should seem characteristically Christian in the sense that it was a call for a change of direction of the whole life. For the Greeks, the word pointed to a change of mind, which referred to a single idea and might as easily been a change for the worse as for the better. Jesus is calling for a revolution in the whole of life. He is calling for people to change their whole direction away from sin and toward God. We should be clear that it is the orientation of the whole life that is in mind and not simply a being sorry for this or that sinful act, end of quote. To truly repent is not simply to be really sorry about doing something. Man, I really feel bad about that. That's not repentance. Sorry isn't enough. A revolution of the whole life is in view. This revolution, we could call it a reformation, is a process that God works in us, but it must be happening for repentance to be real. You have encountered the gospel in the preaching of God's word. Is it changing you? Is it transforming your life? Is the gospel changing your whole direction Away from sin and toward God, is that happening in you? And if that's happening in you, on the authority of Scripture, if you are truly repenting, you need not fear, dear one. You need not fear. You must simply follow God in grateful obedience with awe and delight that God truly is working in you, giving you grace along the way. If that's not happening in you, if you're not repenting, if you are going your own way, I beg of you to repent today. I'm begging, pleading with tears to repent so that 
On judgment day, you do not face Jesus and hear him denounce you. 